0: Good morning. Boys, you guys are pretty pathetic. Didn't you have coffee this morning? Good morning. All right, that's certainly better. This is lesson 15 in our study of the book of Hebrews, and we're focusing on chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. Now, the next slide, if I have this right, we shall see if Bruce has this right (laughs) is not related to my message. Uh, my niece was, is uh, stationed in Iraq, and she sent that picture yesterday about a dust storm. And, and those of you who have been reading emails about dust storms, that might give you just a little flavor of what it must be like to watch one come rolling in. So I thought I'd just toss it in the mix and get your attention. Okay. I my introduction i say promises, promises, oh yes, this is election year isn 't it don 't haven 't you reached the point i mean and, and the reality is, does anybody believe anything that they 're promised at this point in time by any politician I, I think the reality is we don 't it doesn 't matter which party you belong to, there are promises made that, that, that in some instances they have no intention of keeping and in other in, in instances they may have every intention of keeping them and they're still not going to keep them. It's just not possible. And so when we come to this lesson on the promises of God, let's distinguish, shall we? <laughs> let's make a difference between promises that God makes and promises that we are used to hearing and, and conditioned not to believe, especially in election years. The big question is, in this text, why does God need to swear about a promise that He has made? And that will be one of the focuses that we'll uh, pay attention to. But let's look at our text in the context of the flow of the argument of Hebrews. You remember that that all the way working up to chapter 6, we've seen sort of hints as to the high priestly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he really begins to focus on that when we get to the end of chapter 4. Chapters 1 and 2, the sufficiency of Christ. Chapters 3 and 4, the deficiency of man. And the solution is the high priestly ministry of Christ. And he really starts to get into it at the end of chapter 4. And then he begins to show the superiority of the high priestly ministry of our Lord uh, in comparison to the high priestly ministry of the Aaronic priesthood. But when we get to verse 11, he says, I realize that I'm I'm sort of swimming upstream because you are dull of hearing. These are difficult things for you to hear. You haven't been conditioned to deal with meat. You've been dealing with with milk. And uh, so we have a problem. So 511 through 620 is a kind of digression. And it is necessitated by the spiritual condition of the Hebrew reader's to whom he is writing. And so in 5.11 through 14, we see the author's analysis of the problem. They are dull of hearing. They've had plenty of time to grow, but because of the teaching that they've had and seem to persistently need, they haven't really grown and they're not able to digest meat as well as they should. His solution, however, is not to go back to milk. His solution is to do something different than apparently other teachers are doing, and that is to move on to the meat, and in particular to the teaching of the Scriptures on the priestly ministry of our Lord after the order of Melchizedek. In verses 4 through 8, you have the, the future of those who fall away. And we know these are the difficult verses. Uh, and, and I'm sure um, in, in the midst of this audience, there are probably a number of interpretations. And next week, I may agree with any one of you on those. But uh, we're all wrestling with those together. Verses 9 through 12, the author now speaks words of assurance. Although he has spoken hard words of warning... He is now speaking words of assurance concerning the readers of this epistle because he believes that in their case, the vast majority of them fall in a different category that is, those who are true believers. And some of that is evidenced by the way in which they have continued to minister to the saints and to manifest the love of Christ. And then we come to verses 13 through 20, which are our text for today, and we see the basis for our security. And hope now this text really is important in a number of ways. For one, when you look at five eleven through six twelve, the emphasis has been on the believers responsibility. They should by this time have become teachers, and instead they are still need, in need of being taught. Uh, they are those uh, who uh, at least are warned about the fate of some who fall away. And then he talks about the better things that he's convinced of, but they're evidenced in their works. It's possible that somebody would read this, therefore, and come to the conclusion it's really all up to me. We've got to try harder. And the author says, No, if you think that, you've missed my point. My point is that our confidence rests in God and in the promises, shall we say, the covenants that God has made with his people. That's the basis of our security. And so that's what this text is really about, the promises of God that are the root of our uh, confidence and endurance. As uh, as Guthrie points out in his commentary, verses 13 through 20 are sort of the on-ramp, if you want to call it, the on-ramp onto the freeway of the teaching about Melchizedek. He started to teach about Melchizedek, and because of, of the difficulties in the maturity level of these saints, he sort of took the exit ramp and gives this word of warning and exhortation, and now he's getting back on the on-ramp. And what you'll see is that these verses provide a beautiful transition back to the subject of the priesthood of Melchizedek uh, and our Lord Jesus Christ. But there are questions that we need to answer as we, as we deal with this passage. One is, why does God's oath come so late in Abraham's life? The, the, the covenant that is made with Abraham that is, that is validated by an oath comes in Genesis 22 after the sacrifice of Isaac. And so you have to say, well, wait a minute, why didn't that come first rather than come later? One of the questions that we should answer in this message. Second question, why does God need to swear at all when he can't lie and when Christians are told not to take an oath? Why is it that God needs to swear? Swear in the good sense, I hope you all understand. Thirdly, What are the two unchangeable things in which God cannot lie? Commentaries don't necessarily agree on this point, and and it doesn't just jump out and grab you, so that would be a good question for us to think about. And fourth, what is our hope, and why is it the anchor of our soul? Now, I think the key to our text is found in those last two verses before we come to verse 13, and so let's look at those. 6, 11, and 12. But we passionately want each of you to demonstrate the same eagerness for the fulfillment of your hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and perseverance inherit the promises. The same eagerness until the end. What eagerness is that? Well, it's the eagerness that they have manifested that he's just spoken about, those things that are the ministry of these people to other brothers and sisters in the body, that they've shown their love for Christ by manifesting it in service to others, that same eagerness, he says, I want you to persist at until the very end. Perseverance, I think, is the thought there. And then he says, so that you may not be sluggish. This is the same thought that we have back in verse 11 to become dull of hearing. So he's saying this is the cure for being dull in hearing, to be diligent and persevering after this hope that we have been given. And then he says that we might be imitators of those with faith and perseverance who inherit the promises. Now, the first guy that we're going to see who is an example of that is Abraham. And this is really a warm-up, is it not, for chapter 11 when we're going to see a whole bunch of others. But we we are going to uh, be imitators. We ought to be imitators of those who manifest faith and perseverance. So let's look at the example of Abraham. First of all... With the verses that we find in chapter 6 of Hebrews. Now, when God made his promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you greatly and multiply your descendants abundantly. And so, by persevering, Abraham inherited the promise. Now it's necessary for us to go back and look at that text in Genesis chapter 22, where indeed the the covenant, the promise with an oath is given. So look with me at Genesis chapter 22, beginning at verse 15 and recall that the first 14 verses have to do with God saying to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son and offer him up as a sacrifice to me. And that whole incident that you have of him going up on the mountain and all of that and God providing a ram whose horns are caught in the thicket and all of that, all of that has already taken place. And this is God's response to Abraham's, I think you could easily call it, perseverance in the midst of great difficulty in the earlier verses of chapter 22. So we read beginning at verse 15, the Lord's angel called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, I solemnly swear by my own name, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be as countless as the stars in the sky or the grains of sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the strongholds of their enemies because you have obeyed me all the nations of the earth will pronounce blessings on one another using the name of your descendants. So there is the, there is the incident that uh, the writer to the Hebrews is focusing on where God has decreed something with an oath.
1: So what do, we, uh, what
0: do we learn from all this? Well, we know that up to this point, God has reiterated his covenant to Abraham on numerous occasions, and yet none of those with an oath. And in fact, as you look through the incidents beginning from chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, all the way up leading to chapter 21, you'll find that God often provides more detail in, in terms of the land that he's going to inherit, for instance, just after the incident with uh, with, with Lot. He's going to have more detail because Abraham and Sarah have this a thought, mainly Sarah, that that she's not going to have the child and therefore it will have to be a handmaid of hers. And God says, no, it's going to be you, Abraham, and you, Sarah, who produced this child. So all the way through, God is giving more specific detail. You might call it progressive revelation that is taking place, but no oath that takes place in all of those incidents that we see here and maybe others that are alluded to as well. And we have to remember that in the midst of all of these promises that God has made to Abraham, Abraham has not had a 100% uh, performance rating. Would you agree? God says to him he's going to give him these descendants and whatever, and the first thing he does, he leaves the land which God has promised to give him, goes down to Egypt, passes his wife off as his sister, hands her off to be the bride of Pharaoh, and, and he's just thinking, Ugh, you know, I wouldn't give him an A for that course. Uh, and, and so he fails. Then he has the child by Hagar in chapter 16, which certainly was not a profound act of faith. And then in chapter 20, we find him doing exactly the same thing that he did initially in Egypt in chapter 12, and that is passing his wife off. And this time, remember, it is just before uh, the birth, that when that child is going to be born, that these things are taking place. So it is uh, It is not uh, a 100% scorecard for Abraham, and yet God has made all of these promises. Abraham has just passed the greatest test of his faith, and God now makes this covenant with an oath after this great test that he has passed. So why does God swear now? After the greatest uh, exam that he'll ever have, why now? Does God swear with an oath? Here are, my, here are my thoughts. One, hope is the result of perseverance and trusting in God's promises. Now, this is kind of a circle, I grant you. God's promises are the basis for our perseverance, are they not? But our perseverance is the basis for hope. And you see that uh, in, in chapter 6, verse 11. And we desire that each of you should show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope. If you are diligent, you will have hope, he says in verse 11. In verse 15, he says, having patiently waited, Abraham obtained the promise. So there is a sense in which Perseverance brings hope. Now, if you want a a, a little stronger exposition of that, you would go to Romans chapter 5. Remember where he talks about rejoicing in our tribulations and then he talks about our tribulations being perseverance and so on and, and then it leads to hope. Because the more we are under test and we find God's word to be true and God to be faithful, the more we realize this thing really works. And that gives us confidence to pursue and to, and to persevere on. And so there is a sense in which perseverance brings hope. And so what I see here is God has given promises to Abraham and Abraham has now had this great test and so God is going to give him this, this promise now with an oath which even gives him, uh, in one sense, a reward and in another, the basis to press on. Notice that Abraham has not yet seen, nor will he, the, the absolute fulfillment of his covenant promise. Genesis twelve one through 3, the Abrahamic covenant has not been fulfilled in, in terms of Abraham's lifetime. Would we agree? These are promises that are going to happen. What Abraham has seen is the birth of a son. And God spared that son. Abraham believed if he sacrificed him, God would raise him from the dead But Abraham has not seen a nation coming out of that sun that that has descendants like the sands of the sea. He has not seen them overcome their enemies as God promised they would. So Abraham has only seen a small segment of what is yet to take place and the oath is God's stamp of guarantee that what he has promised he will fulfill in full. And that, of course, is that which takes place in the future. And I say, nor will he, because you remember in Hebrews chapter 11, all these died in faith without receiving the promise. And then he says at the end of chapter 11, they did not receive those benefits so that they might together with us receive them. So those full benefits are not going to be received until all of us receive them, and so. They have not entered into the full extent of that blessing, these Old Testament saints, which would include Abraham. Thirdly, the oath was not just for Abraham, but for the heirs of the promise. Who are the heirs of the promise? It's us, us. We are the heirs of the Abrahamic covenant. And so we are given a guarantee in this through Abraham's uh, faithfulness. It says in verse 17, in the same way God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. So why men and God swear? Well, he tells us in verse 16, swearing confirms one's statement. Uh, It removes doubt. Now, I have to tell you, I read that and I thought to myself, is it really true today? I mean, I, I think in some cultures it would be more true than others, but I've heard a lot of people swear a lot of things. <laughs> but but in a general sense, I guess what you would say is when somebody comes up in a court of law and they place their hand on the Bible and they say, in effect, I swear before God I'm going to tell the truth, their words will carry more weight than they would if they had not done that. So it is a kind of guarantee that what I am saying, I really mean, and it is really the truth. He says in verse sixteen as well, men must swear by something greater than themselves. They don't swear by the family dog, uh, you, you know. They, they don't swear by, by by lesser things. They swear by greater things. Uh, you know what is it? The gangster types. I swear on my mother's eyes, or whatever it is. But but the, the essence of it is, it's something that I hold to be valuable not just common, and then he goes on to, or or before he has said, God can't swear by anything greater than himself, can he? There's nothing greater than God, so when God swears, the only thing he can swear by is himself. That's the greatest thing, of course, that there is. So why does God swear? He swears to indicate that his purpose is unchanging and his covenant is Unconditional. Now, I don't, most of the commentaries do not really emphasize the unconditional covenant thing, and I'm not really quite sure why. But it seems to me that you have to say when you look at Scripture that there are some things that God says that are conditional things. And there are other things that God says that are unconditional. And, and the way in which God makes it clear that it's unconditional is by giving his oath. And that's what he says. The author says it is unconditional. Changeable. Now look at these texts. Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 through 10. Here is one of those conditional statements that we find. It says uh, in verse 7 and 8, At one moment I may speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. In other words, God doesn't really change his mind. He keeps his promise. But what he's saying is this is a conditional threat. Now, when Jonah comes to Nineveh and he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will perish. What does the king of Nineveh say? Man, he has all the people, all the animals. I'm not sure how you do that, sock cloth and ashes. But let me tell you, pretty good sign of repentance. And the king says, lest he might repent and he might not bring this judgment. And Jonah said, I knew it. I knew you were going to do that. Jonah wasn't shocked. He expected God to be gracious because he loves to forgive. And so there are in some of the statements of judgment, there is this element of the judgment may may be removed. Friday morning, one of the men reminded me of Daniel chapter 4 Remember where Daniel is talking about how Nebuchadnezzar is going to be cut down like a, and and a stump left and so on, where he goes out and he eats the grass and all that stuff. Daniel says to him, my advice to you, in effect, is repent and do that which is right, and maybe God will forestall this judgment that he's, that he's spoken about for you. So there are statements with conditions. I should go on to add from Jeremiah chapter 18, if you went to verses 9 and 10, There he says, if I promise to bless something and yet they don't live in my ways, then I can remove that promise. So here's what I see. I see God saying in his covenant with Abraham at this point, let me make it very clear to you, Abraham, the promise I am making to you is an unconditional promise. That means there is nothing that can change that. It is fixed. It is solid. You can go to the bank on it. Nothing is going to change about the the promise that I have made. Now, I'll talk about this a little bit later, but let me just go to Moses, for example. That covenant which God made with Abraham, when Israel is is there at the mountain and and Moses is up there and he's getting the law and so on and they worship the golden calf, when Moses intercedes for the Israelites, he doesn't say they'll try harder. Next time, it'll be better. No, it won't. For The next 10 times, it won't. They're going to keep doing the exact same thing. What he says is, God, you made a covenant. And that covenant's unconditional. It in that sense, it doesn't matter about these people and how well they perform. What matters is you said you were going to do it. And so the mediation comes on the basis of God's covenant being unchangeable, not on the fact that God's people are going to change and be better, even though they should. So this is the the backdrop as I see it. God swears to, to make it clear, this promise I have made to you is an unconditional covenant and it is going to happen and you can go to the bank. No wonder it is something on which we can drop our anchor, so to speak, and feel that our hope is settled and fixed. Okay, more. So why does God swear? To give strong encouragement to the heirs of the promise. When God says it in this way, he is making it crystal clear to all of those to whom he has made his covenant, it's solid, you can bank on it, and therefore it gives us encouragement and endurance. By the way, when you look at at texts like 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, when he's talking about the prophets of old and they were looking at their writings and so on and they're they're asking, what in the world does this mean? He says, it was revealed to them that the things that they were saying were not just for them but for you in these later days. And so it, it gives encouragement to the heirs of the promise, not just those initial people but those of us who come later. Thirdly, encouragement pertains to two specific unchangeable things. The first thing I tell you is opinions differ here. It looks to me like the majority view is that the two eternal things are the priesthood of Melchizedek and the fact that it's an eternal priesthood. Maybe that's right. I'm inclined to say this. It looks to me like the two unchangeable things are the two things to which God has sworn on the basis of an oath. What are those two things in, in this context? First, it is his covenant with Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant. It will not change. Chapter 6, verse 13. And secondly, in chapter 7, when he swears by an oath, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So it seems to me the Abrahamic covenant is the first unchangeable thing. It's, it's gonna happen. And secondly, the the uh, priesthood, the high priestly ministry of our Lord Jesus is also unchangeable. He is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That will never fail. So I see that as the end, the promise to Abraham is the end. And the promise with respect to Melchizedek is the means. And if God has promised the end and the means, my friends, I think that's confidence. I think those promises are promises that ought to give us great assurance and great courage. So who is strongly encouraged? Now, you may find me crawling out on the end of this limb because I haven't seen any commentator who did this, so maybe I'm maybe I'm off. But I, I found that the language was interesting when it says, those who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. Now remember, the writer to the Hebrews is steeped in Old Testament uh, revelation. He sometimes directly quotes as he does Psalm 95, 7 through 11. But there are other times when he speaks by way of illusion. And, and, And because of this, New Testament scholars aren't even sure how many times the Old Testament is referred to because the very language that he uses is sometimes just, you could just ring it out with Old Testament stuff in it. So here's my thought. Why does he say we have fled for refuge? That, 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 that doesn't sound like a normal way of someone standing on the rock of his promises. How, how is it we fled for refuge? And what is it that we've seized hold of? Okay, here I'm, I'm venturing out, but let me just take these two texts. The cities of refuge were the priestly cities to which one who was guilty of a, a non-malicious murder, a, a non-malicious death, could go and flee. Now, remember, the, the, the elders of that city would hear the case, and if it was evident that that man had not with malice or premeditation killed, taken the life of another person, then he would live in that city. And the and the Avenger of blood, that that family avenger could not lay hands on him unless he left the city. For how long? For as long as the high priest lived. Now I, I don't know why, but but it just seems to me, now that we have a high priest after the order of Melchizedek who lives forever, how safe are we when we flee for refuge, so to speak, in that city. We're free, we're safe forever, aren't we? Isn't that isn't that the point? The other thing that's interesting is when you look at that text in Exodus 21, 12 through 14, it's a little enigmatic, I admit. It's a little puzzling. But it talks about grasping the horns of the altar. And do you remember the, the the story we can think about in 1 Kings chapter 1, Adonijah rebels against uh uh, um, David and and wants to seize the throne. And, and what does he do? He he goes in and he grabs the horns of the altar. And there was some sense in which he was he was pleading for protection and given it. I might add. And remember Joab when he finds out because he supported Adonijah, he goes in and clings to the horns of the altar. Now, not everybody that grabbed the horns lived, but my point is, it was their petition for help. And it says, if one who grabs the horns of the altar is found not to be guilty, then they can flee to that city where they are spared. Now, I don't know why, but it just seems to me that he's taken Old Testament imagery and said, we who cling to the promises are like those, so to speak, who cling to the horns, and we who flee and find our sanctuary in the Lord Jesus because he's the priest that lives forever... We're protected forever. That's just the way it is. Now, maybe, that's, maybe I've embellished too much, and if I have, you can discount that 50 or 75% and move on. God's remedy for drifting, uh, which we see in chapter 2, verse 1, is the anchor for the soul, chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 1, when he was urging us to pay attention to the word he says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so we do not drift away. Now, there are a number of, of ways in which that expression is used, but one of them would be in a nautical sort of way where a boat literally drifts uh, away from its moorings. Isn't it interesting, then, that he says in chapter 6, uh, verses oops, typo, 19 and 20, when when he says there in chapter 6, we have an anchor for the soul, isn't that saying the solution to drifting is to have an anchor which is rooted in the right thing? And so I see this as, as great encouragement to us. Notice that God's promises are the basis for our hope. I did a little search on, on the word hope, and, and it could be hopes, hoped, and, and whatever. 18 times in the book of Hebrews... That's about 50, 75% more often than any other book in the Old or New Testament. The most frequent use of the word hope in any other book, I think two books, is 11 times. So I find it interesting that Hebrews is the book of hope. And of course, that's just one word that would be used. But God's promises are the basis for our hope. Is that not true? We hope because of what God has promised to us. God's covenant promises are fulfilled in Christ. Now, when you think about all of this and and what Abraham looks forward to, what his hope is, it's really all about Jesus. Somebody said that this morning. A couple people said it this morning. It's all about Jesus. When you look at the Abrahamic covenant, it isn't just about Abraham and having a whole bunch of of descendants because in, in Galatians 3, 15 and 16, it says... When it says, and your seed, it does not say seeds, it says seed, singular, and that seed is Christ. The offspring that will come from Abraham, that is the seed of Abraham that will bring blessing to the world, is none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant uh, in the sense of that seed that brings blessing. He is also, the second thing that was sworn that cannot change is that he is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That is our Lord Jesus. He is the one who is our great high priest and who lives forever. And that's what the author is going to get off into in the next chapters. He enters within the veil as a forerunner for us because he has made the sacrifice. And here what you see is the freedom, that veil which which was such a barricade and the high priest could only go in once a year. Here our Lord has, as it were, ready access. And of course, his entrance into the veil once with his death is what procured our salvation. God's promises then are the basis of our faith and our perseverance while we wait for the fulfillment of what God as promised to us. So let's look at some things in conclusion. Promises assume some delay, do they not? When you say, I'm going to do this, what you're saying is, you have to trust me, these things are going to happen, but they're not going to happen now. You don't have to promise things that you do now, you promise things that you will have. So the assumption that is built into all of this is when God made promises to Abraham when he made promises that he sealed with an oath, he understood that those things were going to take place later. So that means that there must be a period of time between when the promise is made and when the promise is fulfilled and that period needs to be characterized by perseverance, faithfulness, trusting in God, but living on the basis of what he has promised. Our confidence and our assurance rest upon God's promises and faithfulness, which are fulfilled in Christ, not our performance. I come back to, to Moses in Exodus chapter 32. Moses did not appeal to God on the basis of Israel getting better or doing better. He knew better. (laughs) It just wasn't going to happen. What he says is, you made a promise. That promise is unconditional. It has got to happen. And on the basis of your promise and your character, I appeal as the mediator. See, the promises are in God's word. Isn't that right? The promises are in God's word. So if we want a secure place for our anchor to hold, where do we go? I know that there are people, and I don't want to, I don't want to belittle God's personal encounters with, with, with individuals because I know those things happen. But I have to tell you, the things that are given to us by oath are the things we read in the Word. And anything that He has to say to us that doesn't comply with that is something He didn't say. And everything that we need to hear in the sense of where our hope rests is here in the Word. No wonder he says God has spoken finally and fully in His Word. No wonder he says in chapter 2, we ought not, we dare not neglect what He has spoken lest we drift. His Word is where we find His promises and His promises speak of Christ who is the anchor for our soul. That's where we find our security and our confidence. Promises are the basis of our faith. If you think about Hebrews chapter 11, it says faith basically is believing in what isn't seen. Well, one of the reasons it isn't seen is because it's future. There are other reasons, but isn't that true? Abraham could not see the city uh, per se because it was the heavenly city and it was future. He could only see it through the eyes of faith. So the promises of God are the things which are the words which assure us of what we cannot see, but we will see. So it seems to me that the word of God is the basis on which our faith must rest because that is where the promises are contained. Now, if all of it comes down to God's unchangeable oaths, and that has to do with the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and the fulfillment of God's promises regarding the, the uh, priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, a priesthood that is eternal. If both of those are fulfilled in the person of Christ, then does it not fit with the warnings of Hebrews, regardless now for a moment of how you, you take those interpretations, does it not fit that to reject Jesus is to reject your hope? Is that not true? To reject Jesus, who is the essence, the fulfillment of those promises, what hope do you have apart from him? It's peril. And no wonder the author can speak in such strong words. By the way, I was—I uh, I say compare Deuteronomy chapter 28, but remember what it says there? It talks about your life will be like it hangs by a thread. You will say at night, oh, that it were morning and morning, oh, that it were evening and whatever. And you live each day in this sense of anxiety and worry about the future. And that's because they have rejected the God who gave them the promises that should give them the hope. This ought to be the basis for evangelism, should it not? If this is really all about hope that is the anchor for our soul, then isn't it interesting that God is, is removing all of those things uh, out from under our feet that we may have falsely trusted in? I was thinking this morning as we were uh, uh, ready to take the offering about this passage in First Timothy 6. Verse seventeen, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Well, hasn't haven't some things happened in the last couple of weeks, which kind of pull away the the props of false hope? You've been trusting in your in your stock market uh, stuff. I think you probably ought to rethink that one. Or, your, or whatever it is, whatever it is. I think God is putting us through a time where we have nothing to trust other than Him. And Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, we are to be ready to demonstrate and to give an explanation for the hope that lies within. As we see people literally paranoid and in trauma about where our country is going, Uh, you know, the ice is melting up north and things are going on back in Washington, D.C., and who knows what all. Are we people who have hope based upon the covenant promises of God? Is that where our security is? If it is, we have something to say to people who are falling apart, and we have the opportunity to share them the real basis for hope our anchor in troubled times. Let me just say this. If you are here this morning and you have never come to trust in Jesus Christ, there is only one basis for hope, and that is in God and in His promises. His promise to provide a Savior for the world who is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. His promise to give us a high priest who offers once and for all a sacrifice for our sins so they are dealt with forever, and a high priest to whom we may go whenever we are in need. That's the promise of God's Word. He is the one in which we must trust. He is the one in whom we must have our hope and our confidence. And because of Him, we can live and we can persevere in the midst of difficult times. That's the hope of the Christian and the hope of the gospel. Father, Thank you for this text. Thank you for the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus. How grateful we are for those promises that you have made clear will not change, that are rooted in your character, that are rooted in the work of the Lord Jesus. It isn't our faithfulness that deserves them, but it is those promises that encourage us to be faithful. And we ask that everyone here in these traumatic days that lie ahead, would be people who have hope in you, in Jesus' name.